Welcome to Living Proof, the podcast series of the University at Buffalo School of Social Work at www.socialwork.buffalo.edu. Celebrating 75 years of excellence in social work education. We're glad you could join us today. The series Living Proof examines social work research and practice that makes a difference in people's lives. The University at Buffalo School of Social Work is celebrating 75 years of transforming lives and communities. We would like to invite you to be part of the celebration. Please visit our website, www.socialwork.buffalo.edu, to see a full list of events marking our 75th year leading up to the gala celebration. I'm your host, Ajua Robinson. Today's podcast features a discussion with Dr. Lori Weiner. Dr. Weiner is a researcher and a clinician. She is the coordinator of the Pediatric Psychological Research Program in the Pediatric Oncology Branch of the National Cancer Institute. She has dedicated her career to the field of oncology and pediatric HIV AIDS. Dr. Weiner received her PhD in social work from New York University and held a private practice while working at Memorial Sloan Kettering Cancer Center. Dr. Weiner's clinical research has focused on parental needs and coping, children's distress, diagnosis disclosure, loss and bereavement, and interventions designed to meet the needs of critically ill children and their families. She also brings with her a wealth of information about the inner worlds of medically challenged children, some of which have been published in a book entitled, Be a Friend, an Alphabet About Families Living with HIV AIDS, workbooks for children living with life-threatening diseases, and a therapeutic board game called Shop Talk. She has just completed editing a reference book entitled, Quick Reference for Pediatric Oncology Clinicians, the Psychiatric and Psychological Dimensions of Pediatric Cancer Symptom Management. Today, Dr. Weiner discusses how her work with gay men at the beginning of the AIDS epidemic informed her work with children with HIV AIDS and how her research agenda is shaped by the needs of her clients, particularly with regard to disclosing one's HIV status. Dr. Robert Keefe, Associate Professor at the University at Buffalo School of Social Work, spoke with Dr. Weiner. Well, I'm with Dr. Lori Weiner. Thank you very much for joining us today. My pleasure. Uh, Dr. Weiner, I know you have been working in the area of HIV for a number of years. Can you tell our listeners how you became interested in the topic of HIV? Well, it's a very interesting story. I actually didn't become interested in the topic of of HIV. I was um, in New York City in the early 80s when the disease was first um, becoming known as gay-related immune deficiency. And so it wasn't something that I had um, chosen as an area of specialties. Rather, it was uh, the place that I was at at the time and an emerging epidemic. I know your dissertation focused on HIV, and I believe you did do a lot of work with with gay men at the time, which led me to question uh, much of your current research now focuses largely on children. How did you uh, switch from looking at gay men to to children with HIV? When I first began in the field, um, we didn't even know children could become infected. At the time, it was, um, again, it was, it was thought of as being a gay-related disease back in the early 80s. And I ended up developing one of the first um, psychosocial support programs for persons living with gay-related immune deficiency in New York City. Within the next few years, 
um, it became apparent that um, this was a virus and that it was not only gay men who were um, infected with this virus, but indeed it was anyone who was at risk. And um, a few years later, in 1985, I moved down to the Washington area and um, took a position to be able to help incorporate pediatric HIV into an existing pediatric oncology program. Throughout the time that I was at Memorial, it became um, the, the gay disease became known and took a lot of different forms of different names and um, the virus had been identified that we know today and later to be known as AIDS. At that time it was clear that women and children um, had been, growing numbers of women and children had been um, identified as being infected as well and um, my family situation had changed. I was moving down to Washington area and I wanted to be able to see if the needs that had been identified and the services that had been provided would be applicable in a different population. I had interviewed at the um, NIH and the chief of the pediatric oncology branch at that time had a goal of incorporating pediatric HIV into his existing pediatric oncology program and um, wanted somebody who has started programs who had a clinical background as well as a research background. And that was the beginning of 1985. One of the things that I'm very familiar with, having served on a board of directors of uh, an AIDS organization, is historically, as you've mentioned, the virus has predominated in the gay community. And research has shown that a lot of organizations have difficulty changing their, their focus from uh, providing services to, say, gay white men, to other individuals who are now disproportionately impacted by HIV. As a woman, can you tell our listeners what that process was like for you in the 80s when you as a woman were moving into this area that seemed to be impacting so much of the gay community as opposed to communities of color and women, for example? It was, it was a challenge to be able to first work in an area that was pretty enigmatic. You know, people weren't clear of what was happening, um, the nature of this illness, who was going to be um, impacted by it, whether it was quote-unquote contagious, and something that really appeared to be fatal. I mean, most of the young men that I worked with in the very beginning died within two years of the time that they first presented in the hospital. And so you're working with something with the stigma, you're working with something that's fatal, you're working with something that is unknown. And those three areas um, can cause significant stress for, um, for a professional as well as for the population that you're working with. I think one of the areas that when you are not part of the community that's greatly impacted is you can have a little bit more distance in some ways. And what I mean by that is that for many of the young gay men professionals who were trying to be able to serve their community and serve them beautifully, they too were so concerned, looking themselves, you know, do I have any spots today? They were losing people by the day. So you're grieving at the same time you're trying to be able to provide services and you're concerned about your own well-being. Being a woman, um, not knowing that women also were at risk at the time, um, again, gave a little bit of the distance and the objectivity to see what was going on and could be able to intervene to help the staff as well as the quote-unquote patients who were coming in. And so I think that that was actually um, that was a gift so that I was able to move a little bit quicker. I 
think that having somebody who is not frightened for themselves at the same time and who can be able to just give 100% to that community, um, I think was also something that probably made um, it easy to be accepted. Um, having a clinical background, being very familiar with the community already, you know, um, having a predominant part of my, my um, private practice at the time was also um, was also gay clients, and so that part was not the transition for me. It was dealing with an administration, and it was dealing with um, other people who really weren't ready to embrace this new disease and the resources that it would take. More importantly, and for any professional, whether it is HIV or it's a different disease or something that's going to come up in the future, is not getting caught up on the title of the disease, but who the people are and getting to be able to know them and how they perceive what's going on in their lives and what they need and what their concerns and fears and worries are and what they want in terms of services to help them to be able to adapt to, adjust to, and to be able to move forward. And so having a research background and be able to go in and ask them, what services do you need? And over time, those services change as well. I was able to develop a program that reflected the needs of the population at that time. And by continuing to do needs assessments ongoingly, we were able to develop services that were based on the needs of that population as that population and the disease was changing. And now the, as the disease continues to change and is impacting more uh, communities of color and people of varying ages, I know that much of your research has focused currently on children's self-disclosure of their HIV uh, status to peers and to others. Can you help our listeners to understand how they, as helping professionals, could prepare younger people living with HIV to self-disclose their status? You're talking about children self-disclosing, but it actually you have to step back a little bit mm -hmm. because it really depends on how the disease was disclosed to them. So many parents waited long periods of time before they were ready to be able to disclose the diagnosis to their child. Many children learned about the diagnosis from other people other than their parents. So one does not, you know, takes their lessons of how they learned and how secretive this is, and that's very powerful in terms of what they think is a safe thing to be able to tell other people. So if one comes from a home where you do not tell anyone, we do not share this outside of the home, that person may be much less likely to feel comfortable to be able to share that with other people when there's family members of their own that still don't know that they are infected or their parent is infected or they lost a family member or parent to this disease already. So there's layers of secret. So the first part, just again to step back a little bit, when I started um, when I came down to work in a pediatric program and to start up a pediatric program, he went right back to the lessons I learned working in New York City, and that is to begin with a needs assessment. I didn't know what the needs of these families would be, so we took a population of the new population of parents who had a child living with HIV, um, and many of them were infected, the parents were infected themselves, and we compared them to the needs of families who have a child with cystic fibrosis and families who have a child with cancer to be able to see what the differences are because models have already been created for other, other chronic diseases. And then ongoingly having these assessments to see how their needs and their children's needs change as the epidemic changes, as developmentally the children um, get older and as we know, children's needs changes through the developmentally. So one of the first issues that came up was that of disclosure. 
first, many of these parents didn't expect their children to live. First they were told they weren't going to live till they were five, then they were told they weren't going to live until they were ten. So having to disclose the diagnosis didn't really feel like a priority to them. Why should I burden them with this information when they may not live anyway? Why should I put another you know, difficulty on them? Won't they become more depressed, more frightened, uh, more possibly stigmatized if I tell them they have a disease such as you know, this disease, which people are so afraid of? Once the, um, it, the disease, once there were better treatments available and these children were beginning to live longer, this became a very critical point. The children needed to be able to know what it was they had. One, because they had to go to the hospital frequently to be able to get medication and were being asked to take medication many times a day and wanted to know why. Um, and also, clearly, as they were becoming adolescents, to be able to um, be educated, to be able to avoid high-risk behaviors where the disease could be transmitted. So there were a lot of opinions at that time. The child should be told. Tell the child immediately. Um, you really have to tell your child or don't tell your child. Your child cannot deal with this right now. Your community will not accept this. In time, you can tell your child. But there were no studies that were done that looked at what are the factors associated with the parent's decision to disclose the diagnosis to their child or not disclose the diagnosis to their child. What are the factors associated with the parent's decision to disclose their own status, HIV status, to their child who's infected or the children who are not infected? So the first disclosure study that we had done was to be able to look at exactly that. And we had approximately 100 parent-child pairs, and we looked at factors associated with the decision to disclose or not to disclose. And we learned um, what factors would be associated with a parent being ready to disclose, why they had waited. We interviewed the children as well. Um, obviously not the children who didn't know about how do you feel about not knowing, but <laughs> the children who knew and about when they were told, who they were told by, what would they want to have been done differently if they felt they were being told, if they were told at the right time and by the right person. So um, we learned a lot from that. And we also learned about what happens when you don't disclose the diagnosis. And we also learned about what ha timing, the best timing to be able to disclose the diagnosis, and also to be able to understand that this is just a process. Telling a child that they have HIV is one step. If you think that you're just going, okay, I told them we don't have to address this again, it really takes a long time to be able to absorb. And having the words or the letters HIV intellectually understood is very different than the first time you have an infection and you're hospitalized because of this HIV or you disclose this to somebody else and that person may react favorably or not favorably, it then takes on a whole new meaning. So disclosure is a process that takes a lifetime because it's different with each person. So when a parent and a family is very open about the diagnosis, they may be the child may be very open with other people in their lives when it's been a secret, not surprisingly it often is kept a secret. For parents who believe that they're ready to start discussing with their children the children's HIV status, are there particular ways that you have found that are helpful for parents to begin that process of discussing with their children the children's HIV status? Parents rarely feel that they're ready. They feel like it's the right thing to do, and it's the important thing to do, but it's something that they don't want to have to be able to do. Imagine being able to tell your child, one, you have a disease that there's no cure for, um, 
and that um, you will have for the rest of your life, and that can be life-threatening. Imagine then telling them that I transmitted this disease to you, and this other people that are in your life may also have been infected, and who these are the people in your life who know and other people who don't know. And, you know, if I get sick from this disease, um, you know, who would be there to be able to take care of you? which is one of the first questions a child asks. So the process of disclosure is one that is a process. Sometimes there's other secrets that really need to be disclosed first, um, such as it could be paternity issues. It could be if other people in the family have been infected or previous experiences of family um, situations. Um, some of these children have already lost parents and, you know, and are now being adopted or in foster care but didn't know what their parent had died from. So it's a process that's really very individualized. But we do begin, and it's critical, that all mental health providers that are working in healthcare providers that are working with children living with HIV work with their family from a very young age to be able to have open communication with them about their illness. That doesn't mean they need to be able to start and tell them a full diagnosis disclosure about what they have and what this means. It means having the words to build on later on so that there's a sense of trust. So we work from the very first time that we meet a family on whether what their feelings are about disclosure and if they're not ready to be able to respect that. In fact, one of the findings from the study is that 65% of the children felt they were told at the right time and by the right person, so we need to respect that their parents know these children better than, than we do and when timing may be right. We also learned that um, they were glad that they were um, heard about the diagnosis from their parents and the ones that were most upset about the disclosure are those who heard about it from a physician. They could, their parent couldn't even tell them themselves. So we learned a lot from the study about how and when to be able to disclose, but to work with families from a very early age about the process is critical. So we may say, what words are you using now? And they may say, we use the word virus. We say, okay, you have a virus. And the virus is, you know, we're going to take medicine to be able to kill the virus to stop the virus from hurting you. And if you need to change medicine, you can go back and say, do you remember when I told you you had a virus and we needed to be able to take medicine? Well, those medicines weren't working anymore, so we're going to need to take new medicines. And they could add a little bit more about the virus. In time, they could be able to say, do you remember when I told you you have a virus and we're taking medicine? This is the name of the medicine you're taking. The virus, the name of the virus is and this is what the virus may do. So it's going back to paving a road so they can always go back and travel so the child is not coming back to them later and say, well, what else haven't you told me? But each conversation is, do you remember when I told you? And they could build on that de depending on how much the child may want to know, depending on um, how much the parent is comfortable being able to share at that point in time, and really depending on what's going on with the child medically so that they're not being put in a position to have new procedures being done which they don't understand what's happening. But the decision to disclose and how much to disclose is based on many factors. One, the child's cognitive abilities. Two, it's the parent's emotional well-being. If the parent is feeling this is all new to them and they're feeling very overwhelmed and feeling very guilty, I'm so sorry, I'm so sorry, this is not the time to be able to disclose. If the child is going through a crisis, this is not a time to disclose. If the concern is the child is the type of child that's going to tell everybody, 
you know, you want to be able to be prepared for that, to have people in your life that the child can talk to. The worst thing a parent could do is say, you can't tell anyone, because what's the first thing the child wants to do is go tell everyone. So if you say, if you want to talk to other people about it, come to me first, and we'll, just, we'll make decisions together, but these are the people that you can talk to, is a very different message than you can't tell anyone. Um, it's also based on other disclosures. If there are other disclosures to be made, those really should happen first. But the most, most, most important part is the open communication and a sense of trust between the parent and the child because there are going to be other difficult situations down the road and you want to be able to know that the child can come back to be able to talk to you about those and that you can be able to go back and talk to your child about any other changes. Because HIV the thinking of it has shifted from being a terminal condition to being a chronic one. And I know many people, when they think HIV, begin to catastrophize. And they think, oh my goodness, that means I'm going to die soon, even though we know that that is not necessarily the case. How can we help parents, and how can parents help their children who start disclosing their HIV status if they begin to hear from others, oh my goodness, this means you're going to die. How can we provide help to the parents so that the parents can help their children to realize that's not necessarily the case for them? Every family um, struggles with this when there's anyone in the family who has any kind of chronic or even life-threatening disease. But for HIV, that's magnified. One, because early, especially early in the epidemic, there have been so many losses. So many of these children have lost friends that they've met in clinic and spent time with that are no longer here. Many of the children, in fact, in our most recent study, it was about 50% of the children who have survived have lost a mother, and about 48% have lost a father to the disease. So when the message now is, but you can live, that's a loaded message. One, because it's true, if they take their medicine at this point in time at the epidemic, the virus can be under control and it is seen more as a chronic illness. But two, there's often survivor guilt. Why am I living when other people are not? Why am I still here but my own mother or and or father died of this disease and I'm okay? How long am I going to be okay? If there still is no cure to this disease, am I going to get the same symptoms that my mother or father had, and maybe who's going to be there for me? So while this is now considered to be, and should be, a chronic disease, and many of these children's immune system have rebounded, and they could be able to um, make plans for the immediate future of their life, and most are doing that, there's still a tremendous amount of uncertainty. So to just tell somebody, but you're living, and you're doing well, and your T4 counts is great, and your viral load is undetectable, and go ahead and go make plans without allowing them to be able to think about the possibility that one day they too can get sick, and they still are grieving the losses, um, is a mistake if you want to help them to be able to move forward. So it is to be where they're at at the time, to be able to acknowledge that it is still and uncertainty of what's going to happen in time. And if you did get really sick, what would you want? Who would you want to take care of you? Where would you want to be? What are the things that are most important to you? How would you want to be remembered? 
and to be able to take that and address that head on so then they can take that energy and be able to move towards living. But if they're constantly going back to the what ifs, it's hard to be able to plan for the future. So we do, we address that. And we, in fact, we have a study right now that's looking at creating an advanced planning guide for adolescents and young adults living with um, a life-limiting, a potentially life-limiting illness, and it's open to children, uh, adolescents and young adults living with cancer and HIV infection. Well, Dr. Weiner, thank you very, very much for joining us. You've been listening to Dr. Lori Weiner discuss her work with children with HIV-AIDS and their families. To hear more about her work with children with HIV-AIDS over the last three decades, check out the Distinguished Scholar Series of the Buffalo Center for Social Research at our website. Thanks for listening, and tune in again next time for more lectures and conversations on social work practice and research. Hi, I'm Nancy Smith, Professor and Dean at the University of Buffalo School of Social Work. Thanks for listening to our podcast. Our school is celebrating 75 years of research, teaching, and service to the community. For more information about who we are, our history, our programs, and what we do, we invite you to visit our website at www.socialwork.buffalo.edu. At UB, we are living proof that social work makes a difference in people's lives.